You know, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, you probably notice that the number seven uh, keeps coming up. There's uh, seven lampstands in chapter one, seven churches is chapters two and three, the seven seals that you see in chapter four and then began to be opened up in chapter five, seven angels, there's seven trumpets, seven bold judgments. Tonight we're going to see that there's seven thunders that are mentioned. And as we are looking at this pattern of seven, also we've seen another pattern, maybe perhaps you've noticed it going through the book so far, but there is a pattern of seven, and then there's a pattern of four and two and one. And what I mean by that is as the seven sealed scroll began to be opened up in chapter six, you see the four. Uh, so the four horsemen, uh, the, uh, what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, come riding. The first one is the, uh, the rise of the Antichrist, conquering unto conquer. And then the second one was peace was taken from the earth, there was war. The third uh, rider was uh, famine and pestilence, was the fourth one. And as a result of those four riders, a quarter of the earth was killed. And so you have the four, the four horsemen, and then you have the two, and that is the fifth and sixth seal that is opened up. The cry of the martyrs was the fifth, and then the sixth seal at the end of chapter six was this cosmic disturbance and this ge geologic upheaval that took place. And then after that, there was an intermission, chapter seven. And in that intermission, we saw the, the ministry of, first of all, the 144,000 that were sealed by God, 12,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel, and their ministry, as we saw, is evangelizing. They're going to go throughout the, all the nations and evangelize because the result of their ministry, we see the tribulation saints in chapter 7, from every tribe, tongues, people, and nations. So people are going to have opportunity to come to Christ in the tribulation period. I personally believe that the church, that we are going to be absent during that seven-year period, we don't see the church mentioned in chapter 6 through 19, but we do see the tribulation saints, and they're going to go through tremendous persecution by the hands of the Antichrist. We will see that when we get to chapters 12 uh, and 13. Chapter 12 is going to focus on how he's going to persecute the Jews, and in chapter 13, how he's going to make war with the saints, and, um, and along with the uh, other one that's going to come alongside of him, and that is the one called the false prophet. So we'll be looking at that uh, quite extensively in the next few weeks. So you had this intermission, this information that's given to us. And then in chapter 8, you see in chapter 8 that all of a sudden that there is uh, that seven again. The seventh seal is opened up, and there are seven angels that stand up with trumpet judgments. You see the four, the first four, you know, trumpets that blew, the judgment of God would come upon a Christ-rejected world. The first four trumpet blasts resulted in judgment on the earth. Vegetation on the earth was the first one, uh, the oceans, and then on the fresh waters and the springs and rivers. And they were being struck. And uh, as we looked at that a few weeks ago, then an angel would fly, as we saw in chapter 8, through the midst of heaven saying, 
uh, it with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And whenever you read that word woe in the scriptures, it is bad news because the remaining blast of the trumpets. And then we saw the two, and that was that the fifth trumpet that was blown. All of a sudden, chapter 9 of the book of Revelation, there's this uh, demonic force that comes from the abyss. They look like locusts, but they weren't locusts. And they tormented men for five months. And then the sixth trumpet, uh, four other demons come out of the Euphrates River. They are released. And we saw that a third of mankind was killed. So as we go through these chapters, as a result of chapter 6, a fourth of mankind being killed, chapter 9, another third of mankind being killed, half of the world is being wiped out because of these judgments. So it is a time of tribulation such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And we saw that the rest of the, those who were, you know, were not uh, struck from the fifth and sixth trumpet, they refused to repent from their sinful activities and murder and drug use and fornication and, and, and theft and showing the hardness of, of people's heart. That really amazes me. Chapter 9 is a very sobering chapter. So we see the, the four, and then the two, and then we will see that the one as now there's going to be uh, the seventh trumpet as then seven more angels are going to come up. And uh, we have this interlude now, this intermission, chapters 10 and 11. So you see this pattern of seven and four and two and one, and, and in between the, the, the sixth and the seventh, there's this information, and what we see here in chapter 10 is the same thing. Between the six and seven trumpets, uh, more information given to us, and we read now that which takes place in chapter 10, and then in chapter 11, at the end, we'll see the seventh trumpet. But before that, we read in verse 1, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open, and his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So those who are uh, scholars of end time prophecy and, and commentators, they suggest as we read about this mighty angel, some suggest that this is Jesus because of this description. There's a rainbow on his head. His face is like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. And you might recall, they will point out in Revelation chapter 1, when John describes the glorified Jesus there as he heard the voice of many waters, you know, or a loud voice, he turned to see the resurrected Jesus and describes him as his hair is white as wool and, and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. Um, and we read here in verse 2 of chapter 10 that he had a little book. And of course, we have seen that Jesus, that he would take that, that scroll, uh, that seven-sealed scroll that we have talked about already quite a bit, that it was introduced to us in chapter 5. It was in the hand of God the Father. Jesus takes it out of his hand, and then chapter 6 begins to open up that seven-sealed scroll. And, and so there are those who say this is Jesus. Plus, also, just to take note, that as we go into chapter 11 next time, that we're going to see that um, I was given, as you read in verse 
one, a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So we'll talk about that. But the angel uh, is, some say, in reference to this mighty angel here, chapter 10. And he will tell us about John in chapter 11, the two witnesses uh, that are in Jerusalem that, that uh, are ministering, witnessing for three and a half years. And it says that in verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses. So this is the angel speaking here. So it could very well be Jesus. These are my witnesses, says the Lord. So if you're one that is in the camp that this is Jesus, you have good biblical reasons to suggest that, uh, to, to fall into that camp, to, to back you up. But also, just about as many scholars and commentators identify this angel as not Jesus, but a mighty angel from heaven, perhaps Michael, that we see in Daniel chapter 12. Michael, the archangel, definite article. He's the only archangel that is mentioned in the scriptures, uh, a mighty angel who describes uh, a period of tribulation there in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. You, you, I'll read it to you but at that time Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over uh, the sons of your people that is Israel the Jews and there shall be a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation even to that time and, and Michael in chapter 12 swore by him that lives forever and as we read here continue in chapter 10 of Revelation that's what we're going to see with that this angel is going to do so many believe that this is an angel, perhaps Michael. My opinion, not that my opinion is important. And remember, when we started the book of Revelation, there's a lot of things that we're going to be dogmatic about that are certain, but there are some things that we're not going to be dogmatic about. And so some say that this is Jesus. Um, they point to Scripture. Some say that this is uh, an angel, perhaps Michael. Uh, my thought that I personally believe that this is an angel is not Jesus, but I'm as wrong as anybody in, in looking at this. Um, he's a big angel. I mean, look at him. His right foot is on the sea, his left foot on the land. Clearly, this angel has come from the very presence of God and shows great might and authority. And as we read in verse 3, and cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So John here, it's recorded that he was ready to write down what the seven thunders uttered. Uh, interesting that thunder uttered something. So definitely this is divine thunder, divine voices. It's loud, whatever the case may be. It's interesting. When you go to the book of Exodus, and we're ones that we're used to thunderstorms coming over in this part of the country at this time of the year. We had one on Sunday. And uh, maybe perhaps you remember we were sitting in our living room and we heard a big bang and a loud thunder. And just down the street, a few blocks, about a half a mile, a church got hit. And you perhaps have read that. It hit the top of the roof right above the sanctuary. There was 180 people there. 
that what I understand that when that hit, and it was loud at my house, a half a mile away. So crazy, isn't it? But we're, we know that thunder is loud. When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai there after they left Egypt, that we know that the mountain shook, it was on fire, and there was thunders and there was lightnings, and the people were overwhelmed. They, they said, Moses, we can't go up there. You go up there. And they fell on their faces. It was so overwhelming. So you know that it was divine thunders and lightnings that were taking place. You recall in the heavenly scene of Revelation chapter 4 that proceeding from the throne, there was thunders and lightnings. So again, uh, divine thunders and lightnings. Exactly. John's describing something that we can't fully understand. And, and here are these, these seven thunders that utter something. And John was about ready to write it down. And he's told to seal up these things that was uttered. And it's amazing to me that there are those who have come along over the last 2,000 years and they will say, I know what the seven thunders uttered. That they will declare that they know that perhaps they had a vision, they were taken up into heaven, and it was told to them what the seven thunders uttered, or you know, they had a vision of you know, something, and, and I know what the seven thunders uttered and all of this. Listen, don't buy their booklets, don't listen to their you know, teachings. It's a waste of time. Because John is told you're going to seal it up. And we don't know what the seven thunders uttered. It's just like there are those who will come along and they will say this, this little book that is in the hand of this angel, that they will tell you what's in the little book. We don't know what it is. It hasn't been revealed to us. What is also, I was considering this, that John would leave the island of Patmos, right? And he would go back to Ephesus and he would give this letter to the Christians. And they would read it. They needed to be encouraged because they were going through a time of great persecution at that time under the rule of Domitian. And, and they needed to know that, that Jesus is coming back, that he hears their prayers, just as we've talked about as the prayers of the saints are presented to the throne of God there in chapter 8. They needed to know that the Lord was going to establish his kingdom. But if I was reading this, if John you know, brought this back and I was reading reading it and the seven thunders uttered something, I, I would have probably gone to John because I know myself and say, hey, John, you can tell me. I promise I won't tell anybody. You can go ahead and tell me what the seven thunders uttered. And, and that, you know, whether anybody did that or not, but that's probably what I would have done. You know the definition of a secret. Something that's told to one person at a time. You know, you know how that goes. I got a secret. Don't tell anybody. I'm only going to tell you. So, and for us Christians, we need to be wise and discerning, of course, uh, when it comes to things like that. But we don't know what the seven thunders uttered. We don't know uh, what it was. We're told very clearly in Scripture. It was sealed up, just like we don't know what was in this little book here that the angel has. Now, there are those who hold the view that, that this is Jesus, equate this, you know, book that is in the hand of this angel, this open book, with the seven-sealed scroll that Jesus has, again, as we saw in chapter 5, and he began to break those seals in chapter 6. If this is Jesus, then it very well could be that seven-sealed scroll. But John does use a little different word to describe uh, the scroll here, Revelation chapter 
10 than the one in chapter 5 and as he began to open it up in chapter 6. The Greek word in Revelation chapter 5 is biblion, means a scroll, a book. Here is bibliana dion, which speaks of a little booklet. So it, it might be best just to see them as different, but some don't see it as different. Some in the book of Revelation, uh, as we read this, um, we know that uh, he has this book, and then we're going to see what John is told to do with the book. But, you know, as we go through the book of Revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, we know that this book is meant to be understood. I don't know if you've ever had anybody that's come along and say, well, you can't understand the book of Revelation. We can understand it, can't we? This book is for us. And then what has been attached to, you know, studying the book of Revelation, that those who read these words, those who hear these words, and those who keep the words of the book of Revelation, remember chapter 1, that there's a special blessing that is given to us, uh, those of us who are here studying the book of Revelation. So I'm so glad that we can be here. And I think studying every book of the Bible, there's a blessing. But the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible out of 66 books that has that special promise. If you read it and you hear it and you keep the words of the book of Revelation, and keeping the words means that you hold it dear to your heart. You believe what's being said, that these things are going to come to pass. And as we've gone through this book over the last six months, we can understand a vast majority of the book of Revelation. But again, there are going to be some things that you know we just don't know and and within the revealing there's a concealing as we see with the seven thunders that are here and, and as you know I spend more time in the word of God and as I journey with the Lord I come to realize something that we need to realize and understand and I know many of you do that the Lord doesn't reveal things or tells us things all the time in every area of our lives, in everything that we're facing. John, seal it up. It's not to be known. Now, why would the Lord do that? Why would the Lord record this in the Word in chapter 10 if He didn't want us to know what the seven thunders uttered? And I think that, that we can have some suggestions. We can consider this. I mean, He's not teasing us. It isn't like the Lord is saying to us tonight, you know, I know something that you don't know, and, and I'm not going to tell you. And we might think, then why would the Lord have it recorded? Why would the Lord record this if we don't know what the seven voices uttered, if we don't know what's in this little book, uh, if it is different than the seven-sealed scroll? I, I think that I suggest that there are some reasons, perhaps, why there are things that the Lord will not reveal to us right now a verse that you might want to write down deuteronomy 29 29 and in that the lord says the secret things belong to the lord our god the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children you see in the first part of that verse the secret things belong to the lord our god and as we put the pieces of the puzzle of prophecy together it's like the Lord is saying to us and reminding us tonight as we go through this chapter, you're not going to know everything because the secret things belong to the Lord. Seal up what is being uttered here in chapter 10. And when it comes to our lives personally, that as we walk with the Lord and as we journey in life and as uh, we experience things and go through difficulties or tough times or through losses, 
or go through times that hurt or go through tragedy that we're not going to always understand why we're going through it. Where you don't know why certain things take place and why did that happen, Lord, is the question that we can have. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to know. Uh, I like to know. And, and I remember when I was a young Christian, I wanted to know everything that was going on. I, I've got to know. I've got to have the answers to everything that goes on in my life. And I have found that there is a blessing, listen, to say, Lord, as I pray about this particular situation or as I read your word, I realize that there are some things that I am just not going to know on this side of eternity. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And I think that there's a simple reminder here in our text tonight that we are not going to have all the answers. You're not going to be able to answer all the questions to others that say, why? And why is this happening? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, why would the Lord want to keep certain things from you or from me? Why aren't some things revealed to us? I think that there are some reasons. And these are just some things that, that I considered that I've written down in my own notes in, in life and as I've studied the scriptures. But, but as I've come to understand I'm not going to know everything, it does something to me. First of all, number one, it keeps me humble. It keeps me humble. It keeps me from getting puffed up, in other words. The scripture says that knowledge puffs up, and when we think that we know everything and that we have all the answers in any area, then we can become puffed up, and then that leads to being self-sufficient. Hey, I can figure it out. I have the answers. And when I don't have the answers, what it does, it causes me to humble myself and, and, and that it brings actually liberty to me that it takes the pressure off of having to come up with the answers all of the time. It liberates me to say, Lord, I don't know. I don't understand why that's going on. I don't know why you allowed this. I don't know why that person's going through this. And it brings me to a place of humility because I realize that he is God and he is sovereign. I'm not God and I'm not sovereign. And he knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning, as Isaiah says. And he knows the heart and he sees all things. And I don't and I can't. So not knowing keeps me humble. Secondly, it makes me useful. You say, how does it make you useful? It keeps me focused on what is important. What God has revealed to me. And I'm focused on it. I'm not trying to come up with the answers that I can't or, or trying to guess. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And for me personally, what the Lord has shown me, instead of spending all this time trying to figure out things that are not for me to know, then I can take the things that are revealed to me and to my children that are spelled out to me in the word. And I can stand on that. And I can have understanding in that. And I can share it with others. I can share truth and be useful in ministering to others. And I know that I've said this many times, but when I'm confronted with the things that I don't understand, 
then I can fall back on the things that I do understand. When I'm confronted with those things that I don't understand, there have been things that have happened that the Lord's allowed in my life. I don't know why I went through that trial or that difficulty. Why did you allow that, Lord? Why the pain and the hurt? You've gone through similar things. I've been with people in the worst times of their lives, the worst hours of their lives, and they've gone through loss and, and tragedy, and when I'm with them, I don't know what to say. What do I say to a young mom that comes as I walk into the emergency room, and her one-year-old has died, and she comes up to me, and she says, Pastor Jeff, what do I do? Why did this happen? She holds her lifeless child. And I get on my knees when I get home and I say, Lord, how do I minister to somebody like that? What do I say? I don't understand this. The child was just jumping up and down and having fun and all of a sudden gone. Falls over and heart gives out. But when I'm confronted with those things I don't understand, I can fall back on the things that I do understand. The love of the Lord, that he's a God of comfort, and he's a God of hope. And I know that I can stand on his promises and rest in him and trust in him. And that brings me to the third reason that God doesn't reveal things to me is because it causes me to trust in him and to rest in him and to rely on him. I can say, why, Lord? How come? Why this? And the Lord says, I want to give you a peace. And it's a peace that passes understanding. Again, I'm one that I, I want to have understanding. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to give you a peace that passes understanding. Where you don't have to be anxious. We want understanding. He says, I'm going to give you that peace that doesn't come from your own intellect and your own understanding. I'm going to give you that peace that passes understanding. That will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to give it to you supernaturally. And the Lord causes me just to trust and rest in him. Because I know you are on the throne. And in control. And you're coming back. And I can rest in what you're doing in my life because you have saved me. And I can learn to, to just rest in him and I depend on him, not on my own intellect and understanding and logic. And when you have the mindset of I have to know and, and have the answers to everything that goes on, why did I lose that person? Why did I lose my business? Why am I fighting this illness? Why am I going through this difficulty? I want answers now, Lord. And when we have that mindset, we struggle. Obviously, and I think we all go through seasons of that. And we're up and down. And we seem defeated. And it can be a hard season. But we trust in him and rest in his love. And we look to him. And know that his promises are true for us. And he hasn't abandoned us. Paul, at the end of his life in prison, writes to Timothy. 
He's talking about not being ashamed to preach the gospel. And because I have preached the gospel for this reason, I shall also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have commended to him until that day. That's what Paul writes. Some of the last words that he says that we have in the New Testament, Paul says, I know whom I have believed. He didn't say, I know what I believe. He knew what he believed. I mean, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. But he says, I know whom I have believed. I know the one that's in control. And the Lord thunders to you tonight that you can trust me. And you can rest in my love. And that my promises are true. And I am working all things together for good for those who love me, who are called according to my purposes. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We talked about that in detail going through the book of Romans. You know, when we go through difficulties, sure enough, somebody's going to say, well, God works all things for good, and we're not ready to hear it. What do you mean? How can you say this is good? But somehow, in eternity's perspective, in eternity's views, he is working for good for those who loved him, who are called according to his purposes. And what is his purpose? To be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. He's working in your life to conform you into his image. And he says, I love you and I'm working for good and you can trust me. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You're in my hand. And I'm holding you close to myself. And I'll be with you all the days of your life. And when the days of your life are over, I'll take you to be with me for all eternity because you have a living hope. And I may not know why and what and how, but I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. I may not know now, but I do know this that one day that we are going to stand in heaven together and say, righteous and true are your judgments, Lord. Righteous and true are your decisions. Righteous and true are you. And as we stand on that and ask the Lord to minister that to us, then he'll give us that peace that passes understanding and his comfort and his strength. Sometimes the Lord says to me, and just as he said to Peter in that upper room, Remember, he's washing Peter's feet. Peter, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will after this. And there have been things that I've gone through life that have been difficult, and I look back and I see why the Lord did that and why he allowed certain things, and he was working in my life to make me useful, to trust in him more, to bring me to humility, you know, to be humbled before him. But not all things will be Revealed to us, we will understand on this side of eternity. But I do know this, that none of us, when we get to heaven, will say, Lord, I didn't like the way you handled this or, or you know, allowed that. But rather, we're all together, as we are going to read in chapter 19, righteous and true are your judgments, your decisions. It all worked together for good in eternity's perspective. And I may not see it now, and especially if you're in the middle of some trial or difficulty or hurt or pain, but I trust in him, his word to me, I know whom I have believed. My Lord, 
who loves me so much, who died for me, who loves me so much that I can call out to him. He loves me so much that you know he's going to take me to be with him for all eternity. So the uttering of the seven thunders is sealed. It's not revealed to us. In verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delayed no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, uh, the prophets, so if the angel swore by him who lives forever and ever and created all things, who would this angel swear by? The one who created all things, Jesus Christ. Colossians says that Jesus, by him all things were created. So this is why some think that this angel cannot be Jesus because he's swearing by him who created all things. He has taken an oath by him who is greater than this angel, this, this mighty angel. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 tells us God swore by himself, as we read in that. So some come back to this very well could be Jesus. But here you, you might notice that if you have a, a King James, uh, I don't know how many people do, a few people still today. But in verse 6 it reads that there should be no time any longer. And some have read that and they've made comments that, well, when we get to heaven, there's going to be no longer any time. And I don't think what this, that's what this verse is saying whatsoever. I think that the new King James is more accurate, uh, that there should be delay no longer is really what's being said. That is, as chronologically we are looking at the middle of the tribulation period, that there's going to be no more delay. His kingdom is coming. He is coming back. And the day will come when the angel will say, no more delay. No more delay. The writer of Hebrew writes in chapter 10, verse 37, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and tarry no longer. I know that we long for the coming of the Lord, especially when we see all the things that are going on around us. And it just seems like it's getting darker and it's getting weirder and more confusing at a rapid pace. How our culture has changed. Just look at the last five years. I think of the time that I've been in ministry for over 25 years. I think how our culture has changed so much. The, the, the evil that is increasing in our culture, in our society. How our kids are being affected. What they are going to have to face if the Lord tarries in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We look around us and we think, what's going on? What's going on in the world? What's going on in our nation? And we say, Lord, thy kingdom come quickly. And the Lord promises that he will come. That we're to keep watching, we're to keep waiting, keep serving, be the faithful servant that's looking for the master's return. And there are those that will come along and they will say, where's the promise of his coming? There is more of an increase in the church today that is saying that we don't need to be looking for the return of the Lord. There is an increase because I'm hearing it 
from people that are saying, our church teaches that the kingdom is already here, kingdom now theology. It's like, are you serious? If this is the kingdom, I'm kind of disappointed. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. There are those who say, oh, there's no, we're all millennials. That's a popular view today. In evangelical churches, there will be no millennium reign. There is no rapture of the church. Peter said that that would happen. There would be scoffers in the last days. Second Peter chapter 3. Where's the promise of his coming? All things continuously were. Preterist view, that's very popular. Everything's already happened. We're just waiting for the Lord to come back, whenever that'll be. All things continuously were from the beginning. There are those who will say to you and to me, you Christian, you've been waiting for the Lord to come for a long time. You said that his coming is near. That pastor there at Calvary Chapel, he's been teaching about the return of the Lord for 20 years to you guys. Well, we're 20 years closer. And he's coming soon. And we see the pieces of the puzzle coming together. And James would write in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rains. And you also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It feels like the Lord delays. I wish the Lord would have came back a long time ago, but I also know that in the meantime, there's been people getting saved. He's long-suffering. He's waiting for people to receive him and, and hear the good news, to be part of the kingdom. He has them number. When that last person gets saved, the Lord says, that's it, I'm taking the church, and we're going to go home. There is a time coming, no more delay. No more delay. The one who will come shall come. And verse 7 goes on to say that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which we were going to see in the next chapter, the mystery of God should be finished. Now, in the Bible, mystery isn't something that is unknown to us. It is something that has been revealed. No one could know it unless it was revealed, you know, through the Lord, through the Word of God. You couldn't know it by your own investigation. It, however, has been revealed to you by God, to us, through His Word. When the seventh angel is about to sound, the, the mystery of God would be finished as He declared to His servants, the prophets. In context, the mystery of God refers to the unfolding of the resolution of all things, which we're going to be reading about in the remainder of the book. As we get into chapter 11 in Ford, it speaks of that last three and a half years, the middle of the tribulation to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is called the great tribulation period. No more delay. I think about how Abraham, he looked for that city, we're told in the book of Hebrews, whose maker and builder is not by human hands, but by God. I think about how 
you know, they waited for the, you know, we read Isaiah and the prophets came along and talked about a reigning Messiah that's going to come and usher in the kingdom. How they longed for that. And when Jesus came along, they waved the palm branches when he came riding into Jerusalem and he said, this is it. They expected the kingdom of God to be ushered in immediately is what Luke's gospel tells us. But when they realized that he's not going to usher in the kingdom, he's not going to do away with the Rome and the, and the, the, the submitting you know, power and, and, and putting Israel under the yoke of, of Rome. They're, God is not going to set up his kingdom. Jesus isn't. They would cry out a few days later, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us because Jesus came to free us from sin. He came as the suffering Messiah. And when he rose from the grave, it was in Acts chapter 1, the disciples said, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said that the times and seasons are not for you to know, but I want you to wait here for the promise of the Father that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For 2,000 years, we've been waiting for the return of the Lord, but there's going to be a time he is going to come back and we are to be watching and the fulfillment of scripture is going to happen so don't let anybody duke you into thinking that we shouldn't be watching or the Lord isn't going to come or he delays his coming we are to be looking for the return of the Lord and there's going to be that time where the culmination of everything that we're reading about is going to come to pass and he's going to usher in his kingdom and we're going to rule and reign with him. So in verse 8, then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me a little book. And he said to me, take and eat it. And I will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little book out of the uh, angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many people's nation, tongues, and kings. And so as we finish here, the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, John was commanded to take this little book from the mighty angel who has declared the good news, no more delay. Now John, take the book and eat it. And as John eats the book, interesting, it's sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his belly. Psalm 19, David writes that God's word is sweeter also uh, than honey and the honeycomb. Psalm 119, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So the word of God is likened to being sweet tasting, but we also know that the word of God can be bitter as well. You see, Ezekiel the prophet was told to eat a scroll, the word of God, and then Ezekiel in chapter 3 of his book, as he did, it was in his mouth like honey, like sweet. But it was also bitter because Ezekiel had to talk about judgment that was going to come to God's people because of their continual disobedience. He would go out and, and to talk with those who wouldn't listen to him, talking about how judgment was coming to Jerusalem and difficulty was going to come. How do I know, listen, that I'm really digesting, taking in, eating of the Word of God? It will be sweet in my mouth. The promises of the Lord, the promise of salvation, of forgiveness, that no more delay, He is going to come back. 
that everything that, that we need for that abundant life, to have it is found in him. Those things are sweet, and, and it fills me with joy and peace. But I also know that taking in the word of God, that there can be a little bit of bitterness that takes place. And you might say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? I'm excited that the Lord is coming. I'm excited that he is coming back. I wish he would come back. I wish he'd come back before the service ends here in a few minutes. And I know you might feel the same way. But I also know that when he comes back, these judgments are going to come as well. And there are people that we know and care about that would go through a terrible time. I don't know when the Lord's going to come back. But I do know this. That taking in the word of God, it's almost like a eating Chinese food, sweet and sour, you know. It has sweetness in where I stand on the promises of the Lord. I'm saved. I'm a new person in Christ. But it is bitter. It is sour in the judgments that are given here. Listen, I love teaching about the grace of God. I love teaching about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation and his promises being true, the comfort of the Lord, the compassion of the Lord. I love talking about the long-suffering of the Lord those things that, that is so sweet to encourage. But I also know that it can be bitter. I don't like teaching about judgment. I don't like teaching about Gehenna. That hell is real. And that it is eternal. And it is for those who have rejected Jesus Christ because he is our only hope. I don't like talking about those things. I don't like, you know, enjoy like, ha ha, you know, all right, now we're going to get to the seven angels with their bold judgments, you know, and get to watch, you know, and read about how he's going to wipe, you know, out a Christ-rejected world. I don't enjoy those things. And he doesn't take delight in the judgment of the wicked that we know Ezekiel says. His will that none should perish, but all come to repentance. But there is sin that's going to be judged. And I hope for you and for me that as we take in the word of God, it is sweet, but it also is bitter. And my point is this, that as we go through the word of God, it's going to be sweet a lot of times, but it's also going to be bitter. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. He talked about Gehenna. We're going to read at the end of this book, and it's so sobering to me that the time's going to come when the unrighteous dead, those who are not believers, are going to stand before the great white throne judgment. That is real. This is not a game. It is real and eternal consequences. Isn't that a little bitter when we think about that? But the way that the church is becoming is we want the feel-good messages you know, we don't want to convict people of sin or confront sin. We don't want to tell people that certain lifestyles are, are sinful, homosexuality or living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, that going out, the drunkenness and partying, that that's all sin and God doesn't want you to live in that sin. It becomes bitter to people. I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. And the church has backed away and peddled away from the truth of what God's word declares. 
It's, it's bitter sometimes to say if you're on a path of sin, the Lord's going to chasten you. And you're going to fall into some very hard times. And it's going to bring you bondage and defeat and depression. Because that's what the Word of God says. People don't want to hear that. Leave me alone. I want to live any way that I want. I want you to just tell me how wonderful I am. Listen, God loves us. But he calls us to repentance from sin. So I hope that we here at Calvary Chapel, that we don't just want the, the, just the sweet stuff. I'm going to give you a lot of sweet stuff. And I hope you're encouraged when you go home. But the bitterness is there as well, that which is sobering because that's part of God's word and we need to declare it. And oftentimes what we do is we just kind of turn off, you know, all the things that we think, I don't want to hear that. Don't talk about that. Don't be talking about God's judgment. God's judgment is real. God's judgment will come. And the sweet part is, that we can tell you, you don't have to be judged because Jesus took the judgment for you on that cross because he loves you. And he didn't leave you without any hope. I pray that when people around us, and I'm sure you've heard people say this, well, whatever you believe, that's fine, I'll be okay. And I hope we don't say, oh, you know, that is okay. Whatever you believe is okay. And no. Let's stand for the gospel. Paul, as he was writing to the Philippian believers, we want to talk a little bit about this. He writes, finishing his words to Romans, he says, striving together. That's a very specific term. It's a term of the ancient Olympic Games. It means a team effort, striving together. He's going to talk about striving together, what it is that we are to do. Striving together as a church. Striving together, Calvary Chapel. That's what you and I are to do. But in Philippian book, he says, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Let's strive together for the sake of the gospel. And part of the gospel message is you have sinned and Jesus came to die for your sins. And that's why you need to turn to him and call out to him, repent. That's part of the message. And it may be bitter to some people, but you pray for them and you speak the truth in love. Sweet and sour. John ate it sweet in his mouth, bitter in his stomach. Sometimes the word of God is that way. But it's not to make us better, uh, bitter. It is make us what? Better. It's to make us better. And to bring truth to others. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, this chapter is, whew, has so many reminders to us. And thank you for this pause that we can talk about, Lord, how... We don't understand everything that goes on in life. We just don't. But we can trust you. And we can be humbled before you. And that, Father, that we can rest in your love. And that we can be useful. And so, Lord, I pray that anyone here tonight facing things that may be struggling, why, Lord? And you don't have the answers. But to know that he loves you and know that he is working somehow, some way, in eternity's perspective for good. And he's here to bring comfort to you and strength
Maybe you've gone through some deep hurts. Maybe you've gone through deep loss, tragedy, been abandoned, been abused, whatever the case may be. And I want to say this, I don't know why. I know we live in a world that has fallen and there's sickness and disease and tragedy. There is sin. But Jesus didn't leave us without any hope. And he's overcome the world. And he loves you and he's with you. And his promises are true for you. And he desires to take those bitter experiences for you to trust in him and to look to him to be better and stronger. Lord, work in our hearts that when we're confronted with things that we don't understand, we can fall back into things we do, and that is your love. And that you hear us. Father, I thank you for these reminders. And Lord, as John takes that book and as he eats it and it's sweet, oh, we thank you for your promises, your love, your grace. But Lord, there's also bitterness that causes us to to be at awe with you, that we worship an awesome, all-powerful, all-righteous God that will judge sin. We're thankful the sweetness that Jesus took this the judgment for our sins to be the propitiation and made atonement. And as we have come to salvation, we are forgiven and we are free. And the judgment has passed to everlasting life. But we also know that there's people around us that they need to hear the truth of your word, that sin will be judged and that you're coming back this world's going to come to a terrible end and there is sin. And so, Lord, I pray that we would speak that with love to others and give them truth. And, Lord, it's not always easy. It can be bitter at times. It can be hard. But, Lord, we don't want people to be deceived. We want them to know truth and light. Father, I thank you for tonight. I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. I look forward to coming back on Sunday morning and being renewed and refreshed in your word once again. Lord, thank you for your love, your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.